welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. We are in a bad way. The both of us. Yes. Yeah, you. I'm a a little bit under the weather. I'm having some weird sinus inner ear shit going. I don't know. But you know what? It's worth it because you're looking better than ever. That's what I say. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> David, you've 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 joined a gym. You're swimming your little heart out. Uh and you've got uh what? I, yeah, no, that's true. I've been swimming my little heart out at yeah. the gym. <laughs> cuz I joined a 24-hour gym because mm-hmm. I, I realized that like I am I'm weirdly like I'm not a morning person mm-hmm. and yet I get up early. Like I get up at 5:45 most. Oh, days. good god. But I'm not a morning person. Okay. And so the idea of working out in the morning is so, like I will try and then I will, I will more often than not find an excuse not to. Like, sure. oh, I've got too much shit. To, i got to get ready for – Right. i got to write this movie review before I go to work, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I, I talk myself out of going to the gym. So I joined at 20 or, – or, or just working out because I mm-hmm. used to work out at home or go for walks or whatever. And so I joined a 24-hour gym. So now that when I'm like done with a – I get off at like uh, get done with a movie screening at like nine thirty at night. Yeah. I can just like have my shit in the car, go change and go to the gym at ten p.m. Yeah, and I'm much more able to do that. And, and I've been it, exercising by swimming because right. that's how I grew up. Like I was on a yeah, you were on the swim team for like eight years. Like I was a big yeah. swimmer as a kid. When I first met you, you looked like Michael Phelps. That's yeah. all I'm saying. Uh-huh. And I ate like Michael Phelps. <laughs> yeah, a dozen eggs a day. <laughs> um. And so, yeah, I've been swimming late at night, and it's been great. Uh, I've got that sort of, like, just started working out again, like, muscle mm-hmm. soreness that kind of, like, weirdly feels good because you know you're doing something. Yes, right? absolutely. You know what I mean? Yes. So I've got that going on. But, yeah, it has it is – the swimming is fucking with my ears. Yeah. And uh, tonight is is uh, worse – Worse than ever. Um, so yeah. So between my, you're getting sick. My kind of hoarse voice and yeah. your inability to hear. I think the volume is going to be all over the place. But uh, anyway. <laughs> so, uh, but you so, had something that was eating at you. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily go that far. But okay. it's more just. Uh, you know, you are tuned into film Twitter, uh, and I am trying not to be this week. Oh, yeah. That's a good call. I haven't seen I'm, Joker. Yeah, I'm glad that I'm I'm going to be out of town. I'm going to be at a film festival that, frankly, is going to. I'm overstating. They're going to be so terrified of that R rating that I I'm going to be hanging out with the one group of people that is not interested in seeing Joker. Yeah, that's an overstatement. Many of them probably will. Yes. I'm avoid. It's not even film Twitter. It's Joker Twitter. I'm avoiding it. Yeah, I'm avoiding the Joker discourse. Yeah, I think I'll be happier for it. And yet, you know what? There is. As strange as it is, this is not what I wanted to talk about at the top. It is kind of, in its own way, exciting to me that just a random, I mean, it's not random, but just like, it's a movie about the Joker, a character we've been, I would say, overexposed to. I remember I wrote an article uh, when there was rumors of Leonardo DiCaprio playing the character, and I was like, we are overexposed to this character. We don't need any more from him. Uh, And so just when you think you've seen everything from the character... Uh, I'm excited at the notion that people are, are talking about a film as there are a lot of people that I think can be very dismissive 
of film as just, well, it's just entertainment. At, at least in a lot of the circles that I have run in, I've heard that over and over again. And so when you run across something like this, which yes, it's R rated. Yes, it certainly isn't necessarily meant for a wide audience, but it definitely has that appeal because it's called Joker. Uh, and that it is for good or ill showing that film it can be very culturally relevant. Okay. Uh, and that's exciting. That's exciting to me. Even if Joker does all the wrong things, uh, it's just like, yeah, movies can be big. Movies can be important. Pay attention. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's not what I want to say. Uh, so I'm, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily part of, uh, film Facebook cause I don't think it really exists, but I'm part of a number of, uh, uh, Facebook groups that are dedicated to film. Um, and it's always interesting to see certain trends. Like I'm part of, you know, here's like a Christian group devoted to film. Here's a silent film group mm. over here, whatever it is. Um, and every once in a while, there'll be like something that is shared amongst all of them. Uh, and so I don't know if you're aware of, I don't, I think it's called uh, Metropolis Remix, where essentially somebody... In my opinion, I think they were inspired by that movie, uh, they, they Shall Not Grow Old. Um, somebody took Fritz Lang's Metropolis, I think slowed it down because, of course, silent films uh, were shot and thus projected at a slightly different frame rate, which is why everything looks a little faster okay. uh, than what we're accustomed to. Um, and so they essentially slowed it down, colorized it, removed all the inner titles, and then dubbed it, which is wow. now, understandably, everybody's initial reaction at, in these various groups was, uh, this is sacrilege, this is the worst thing. <laughs> sure. And, what, and my reaction is a little bit different, which is, this is not a situation where like I'm mad at Ted Turner or something like that for trying to color yeah. this this is just something that someone did. Right, it's not a commercial enterprise. Right. Yeah. Someone did this almost from an experimentation standpoint. And while I don't necessarily know their ultimate goal, it did seem to be just they were curious to see what the film would be like in a to to essentially modernize it a little bit. And that's something that hmm. I'm 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 very much in favor of just from a purely experimental standpoint the idea that and and to me it actually it got me thinking about the Ted Turner colorization movement and of the early 90s um and i guess it was late 80s but the idea that oh well there are these classic black and white films and no we'll just put we'll just make them in color and at no point is there the question that like yes but if for example, if Alfred Hitchcock wanted to make, uh, I'm trying to think, let's say Rebecca, I know that was black and white, but like if Alfred Hitchcock, if he had access to color at the time, he would have made the film in a different way. You know what I mean? Like if Fritz Lang had access to sound okay. and color, that's not to say that, that's not to say that he wishes he didn't. Is someone playing hide and clap in your? I don't know. It's it's. Is it still like residual <laughs> creepiness from our commentary yeah. now available at Patreon.com and on the Battleship Retention uh, website? Uh, my guess is that's my wife Jen clearly giving us an in for our promotion <laughs> of our new commentaries. Um, no, so uh, 
so this idea, I don't mean to suggest that like every filmmaker in the, in, in the silent era, the classic era, they're like, Oh, if only I had access to sound or, or color. It's not that it's just, it st- projects like this are interesting to me because you can see like, yeah, it's not, it's not going to feel the same. It's not even going to feel like the same movie modernized by incorporating sound, taking out inner titles and adding color. It's a, it's a completely different movie and one that probably is not going to inherently work. It's like if you <laughs> right, were to, yeah. it's like if you were to take pulp fiction and put it in chronological order. Like, yeah, it makes a certain it, it makes sense, but it doesn't feel right and that's not what the director was choosing to do. And so whether it be limitations or let's say this, if it's like, "Hey, uh, the shark from jaws, we were able to make it so that it worked immediately." And Spielberg could do whatever he wanted with it. And he didn't need those barrels or anything like that. It's like, yeah, now it's a different movie and probably a lesser one. Mm. And so to me, like the reason that just on principle, I'm okay with the experiment and I don't view it as inherently wrong is because of the conversations that it can start. Yeah. The point is, let's just see what happens. Yes. No one's saying here's the, here's an improved version of Metropolis. Yes. They're saying, let's just see. And along those lines, there was another project that came out earlier this year where someone took the, I don't know how they did it. I think they shot some new footage. I think they manipulated existing footage of the the fight in Star Wars and New Hope between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader, uh, a, a fight that people have talked about is like very slow and very small. It's, you know, a guy in a mask that can't really see. And then an, an aging British actor mm-hmm. fighting with with these swords on a pretty low budget. So they probably didn't have a lot of choreography. And so people say like, oh, that's not a very interesting climactic fight. So somebody went in. And through like computer technology and that sort of thing, enhance the fight and stretch it out to like six minutes. And it's really complex and all that. And so I was watching that today. I had heard about it. And so I was watching that today. And that's also an interesting experiment. But then you look in the comments and everybody's saying like, oh, this is so much better than the one. Like Mm. they're approaching it as in movies now are inherently better because they're because you're able to achieve more through visual effects, whatever it is. And just like, Oh, I, and someone said, Oh, I wish they would edit this into the movies. And that's, and that's, this is the movie we have now. And like, I, I don't think that that's, that's not the fault of the people that did the, did that little project. Um, but it is, I think that is when people are resistant to like this metropolis thing. Um, I think that's the attitude they're worrying, worrying about in certain viewers is that the viewers will be like, Oh, finally a a version of metropolis I can stomach, you know, or something like that. So I understand the, the worry, uh, but it's, it's one that for me and for someone like yourself and just people that, have seen the original Metropolis already and already embrace it. It's, it just is a, is a fun, you know, lark that allows academic conversations to happen. So anyway, I just wanted to, to talk about that. Cause I do know there are a lot of people that inherently have a pro in the same way that, I, that I'm not bothered by the idea of a, of a fan edit. Uh, it's yeah. just, it's a different way to engage with the material. As long as you understand that your engagement with that material is not replacing the material. Um, nor should it. This reminds me of what you were just saying about people uh, not being willing to accept older things. Did you hear about this uh, Kenneth Kenneth Lonigan and Kieran Culkin's sort of weird friendship? No. Kenneth Lonigan 
loves Kieran Culkin, but also says Kieran Culkin has never seen a movie made before 1980 and repeatedly accuses Kenneth Lonergan of only pretending to like movies before 1980 to show off. <laughs> I've actually heard that, not with them, but I've heard that argument before. That, And in fact, I forget who it was, but a few years ago there was an article written by someone um, who didn't seem to be just actively trolling, but they were making the argument that, like, well, sensibilities change, and so there's not inherent... There can be academic value in watching older films, but there is an inherent entertainment value in watching them because we're different people now. I don't remember who wrote that. I don't remember who wrote that. That's an do, you, do you remember the one I was... No, I don't, oh, okay, but that's an yeah. interesting argument, and I wonder, yeah. like, do I find old movies entertaining simply because I've seen enough of them that I'm subconsciously contextualizing? Maybe, but you know what? I mean, this is this is a conversation that we've had, I think, with with Kristen before, uh, and, and various other people. That when you're talking, anytime you want to get somebody into old movies, including yourself, you usually start with film noir because it's the most, in many ways, it's the most stylized, so it's the most acceptable. Um, and I'll say that that definitely was the case for me. And mm. the very first noir that I saw, which was probably Maltese Falcon, I had no context for it. And I immediately was like, I love this. It's funny you go to noir because that makes sense. But In the same me, way weirdly, that if you get somebody into silent movies, you start with the comedy and then you go into usually again, usually like expressionism or something. In neither case is it what I did. Mm-hmm. Like older black and white classic Hollywood movies, romantic comedy was my way. Sure. The Philadelphia sure. story was like one of the earliest yeah. movies of that era that I was yeah. able to just watch and be like, I'm not just appreciating this academically. Right. Like this is just fucking great. And it's and, interesting in both that and film noir, there's a very specific cadence mm-hmm. to the way the yeah. characters talk yeah. that is stylized. And in a way that I think modern audiences can just accept it as it is and then just go with it. And then with silent film, uh, cause I was, I was late to come to silent comedy. Mm. I got there through you being, that's right. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really like Nosferatu and that sort of like, yeah. Horror ish, Gothic horror expressionism thing. That was yeah. just like, it just looks so cool that yeah. I think that was, that was my way in. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, we're, we're way off topic. And, uh, we so don't, interesting. We like, don't want to be here forever tonight. Yeah. So with classic film, you feel well. <laughs> yeah. With classic film, you started with comedy, uh-huh. and then moved into uh, the the more expressionistic stuff. With right. silent film, it's the opposite. Right. You did the opposite. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's yeah. fun. Yeah. But uh, man, Philadelphia Story. It's hard to you, beat. It's I, it's pretty amazing. I feel like sometimes there are certain things that I'm just such a fan of that I feel like I beat the drum too often mm-hmm. on this podcast. I talk about the best show with Tom Sharpling a lot. Sure. But also, like, I read the AV Club and have read the AV Club mm-hmm. religiously for my entire adult life. Sure. But uh, and now I can't remember her name. Caroline Side Seidel? I can't remember her name. Mm. But she's writing a, like, I think it's like a biweekly column about the great romantic comedies. Mm. And she ha- it's such a great column. And she has already written, I would say, almost definitively about two of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. For Weddings and a Funeral and just this past week, The Philadelphia Story. Oh, great. Uh, so I definitely recommend people, you know, we're not, 
we're not sponsored by the AV Club or anything, but I would definitely rec- recommend people check out that that rom com column that that she has going on over at the AV Club. It's really great. Um, All right, even when she sometimes writes about movies that I don't care so much for, such like as Bridget Jones Diary. I, I've never seen it actually. Yeah, I, I feel like, but I also feel like there are certain movies, certain rom coms of that era mm. that maybe I just was too young and too in my sort of male centric point of view to wrap my head around like Bridget Jones diary is one legally blonde is one 10 things I hate about you is one like these sure. are movies that are now considered like classics of the genre Yeah, that I saw at the time and didn't, like, I wouldn't even say I hated any of them. Mm. I just didn't respond to them. <coughs> and I wonder if I revisited them now as a more sophisticated and more well-rounded uh, and a more viewer. and a more open and a willing yeah, yeah. Uh, being more willing to to accept something on its own terms because all of those films came out at a very specific time in our lives where we were learning about you know older film or foreign film or whatever it is uh, and so like we were kind of in this weird place where I think we were naturally suspicious of mainstream of anything yes. mainstream if, if a movie weren't conspicuously challenging conventions yes then we didn't have time for it yeah that's a good point and so like if if those movies if you and I were a little bit older or younger I would say yeah uh, I think those movies might have played a bigger role in who in in our appreciation of film but you you know, so it, it's something that fascinates me in the same way that I, I for many years, as you know, I've contended that 1999 is the best movie year ever. Well, I was 17. When, yeah, I mean, you're, yeah, you're at the perfect age. Personal, yeah. um, that said, everyone has caught up to me and realized that I was right. They I don't they think, don't know that that's what they're saying, but that's what I'm saying. I still think um, that it's it's too difficult to say because yeah. we were. Because we were alive and movie going and had the means and all these things, yeah. we were able to see a lot of stuff. Whereas yeah. a lot of other great movie years, like 1973 or like sure. 39 or whatever, like <coughs> we're now only seeing the stuff that everyone else has already agreed upon. And therefore, right. it seems like, yeah, those were great movie yeah. years, but it's a smaller pool. But it just seems that way to us because we weren't around to see it all. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and. And one thing that I'm that uh, so this listeners, this was not uh, this certainly was not a, a roundabout way of plugging the Patreon. But here we are. Uh, <laughs> something that we do every month is we randomize. Uh, we randomly yeah. uh, pick a year and then we uh, discuss our individual five favorite movies of that year. And that even though we're only going with movies that we've seen, that just Thinking year by year, you really come to realize, like, holy shit, like, 74, for example, was an yeah. amazing year. Yeah. Um, and so it it definitely gives yeah, me when, like, a bit more pause. Did taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3 didn't even make your top five? It's it didn't, but it, it, but it, uh, yeah, but it absolutely could have, like, because it, yeah, it's just like, a good year. like, what am I going to do? Bump out the conversation or Ali Fear Eats the Soul? Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, that was a hard, that was a hard decision to make for me. Well, you know what's not a hard decision? What's that? When you're looking for new earbuds, mm-hmm. the place you want to go, no second guessing, mm-hmm. you want to go to tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is your one-stop shop for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Tyler, today, now, I, the, for me, I'm 37 years old at this mm-hmm. point, finally. The last two weeks, I've been almost 37. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait. 
Was I already 37 last week? I th- yeah, I think I, I think was. so, yeah. I can't remember. Anyway, I'm 37 years old now. At this point, I'm not going to get into video games. I think it's ha- like the okay. ship has sailed. I'm not going to get into video games. I wasn't into them as a kid, really. Like, yeah. I, was, I mostly like watch my friends play video games or I play like Tetris a little bit, but mm-hmm. like I've never been a video game person. And yet, even I have been unable to avoid the hype around Death Stranding. Death Stranding is the big video game coming out. Oh, wow. Um, I haven't heard of this one at all. See, you're, you're even more off the grid than I am, apparently. Uh, I have no... I've I don't been care. busy with my... Uh, with Stardew Valley. Okay. Uh, building up my farm and building... And building relationships. Um, you know how to play on my phone? Uh, craps. <laughs> I don't play that on my phone. I play okay. that... Uh, it's too complex a game for your phone, although I think they do still have... I think they did recently release a okay. uh, mobile version, but... Um, yeah, I'm sure to younger people... It's not too complex to play on their phone. Oh, of course not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think there are things that I'm like, I need to be in front of a real computer to do that. But someone who's like like in their early 20s would have no problem doing that sure. on their phone. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is, I don't have any, I, I don't have any interest in Death Stranding. But they've released some songs off the Death Stranding soundtrack, hmm. including a new song by one of my favorite bands of the 2010s, Churches. That's C-H-R-V-C-H-E-S. Oh, yeah. Yes, Jen loves them. The song is called Death Stranding. It's uh, really good. Yeah. Um, and, At least uh, the half that you heard. The other half, totally blocked. <laughs> but <laughs> that that's not this the morning f- when my ears are working. Oh, okay. I'm not working now. Um, it, yeah. Uh, so the new church's song, I love it. It sounded great in my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. These tweakedaudio.com earbuds, earbuds, they're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that already low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tyler? Yes. This is, uh, we're doing an episode inspired by something we talked about last week. Yes. Uh, though now last I don't... week we talked about Scotland movies. Indeed, yes. Movies that take place in Scotland. One of the most famous fictional stories that takes place in Scotland is, of course, the Scottish play, Macbeth. We can oh, say right. it here. We're not in the theater. Um, oh, I've been doing a lot of performances out of my office. I no, should no. tell you that. Oh, no. Well, they're cursed now. <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, – people know about that, right? People, not Non-theater people know? You're not, not supposed to say Macbeth I in mean, the theater? I mean, I wish that I didn't know. Um, <laughs> so why inflict that on uh, non-theater people? Um, okay, but so yes. for non-theater people, I, I think everyone knows this, but I don't really have a grasp on it. You're not supposed to say – outside of performing Macbeth, you're not supposed to say the word Macbeth – in a theater where plays are done. Right. You refer to it as a Scottish play because it's cursed and it's bad luck to say yeah. the word Macbeth. Anyway, that's I, dumb. I remember I had heard that in high school. And then I remember one time when we were performing, uh, when we were rehearsing Bus Stop. Bus Stop was, yeah, the play we did. The play yeah, that I, we did. Uh, you were in it, I did sound for yeah. it. Are you going to tell the story about Jeff slapping Matt? Oh, no, this was when Carrie, uh, one of the Carries, I don't remember, uh, hit me. 
like in the like in my kidney. Um, I, I was talking with someone with, oh, wow. uh, I think our friend Mark Kelly and we were standing on stage and she happened to be walking by and we were and Mark and I were just talking cause his character, uh, quotes Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about his lines and I meant, and I say Macbeth and then she just like punched me. I'm going to say as hard as she could in like my <laughs> kidney. And I was like, what the fuck? And she said like, she goes, you're not supposed to say Macbeth. Uh, no, no. She's yeah. like, she said, you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to say the, the Scottish play. And then she left. And I said to Mark, I hate theater so much. <laughs> but then did you go outside and spit and turn around three times? Or no. whatever it's supposed to be? <laughs> no. I already paid my penance by getting punched in the kidney. <laughs> by the way, uh, I've dealt with kidney stones ever since. Thanks a lot, Carrie. So basically what you're saying is that sound issue we had where the soundtrack of the wind uh, blowing outside the bus stop, the, the titular bus stop. Yes. Somehow switched over to another CD and it was playing Tom Waits music. Right. You're saying that was because you said Macbeth. You cursed us. <sighs> which which performance was that? Was that, was that the state, second? Was that state or international? That was international. That was, was international. The second performance international. Okay. Uh, Why do I remember this? I was 17 years old. I don't care. This happened uh, when we were in Missouri. So you're saying okay. it just cursed the whole production? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, I you mean, shouldn't have said Macbeth. Oh, you should have said the Scottish play. Damn it, I'm sorry. But, but it made for a fun experience when suddenly somebody leaves and the wind sounded a lot like uh, Big in Japan. That's what song by, it was. I guess yeah, you remember what song it was. Yeah. Um, all right. So we decided we're going to talk about Shakespeare adaptations, filmic Shakespeare adaptations. Once again, I've ordered my list chronologically. Okay. I will uh, let you. Uh, hang on. When you say chronologically, what do you mean? In order like, of film release? Yeah, not in order of the way Shakespeare wrote the plays. Okay. Because as I was re- doing my research, that is how a lot of people organize it. Um, yeah, I definitely, I have mine organized by play. And then I, at the end, I'm, I'm willing to do this, if you are. Um, the movies that aren't, that aren't official adaptations, but they kind of are in some ways. See, I think I lumped some of those in, unless you're talking about less of that's like, cause there's stuff that like in dead poet society, they perform. No, it's, Summer Nights. it's, it's not that. In fact, I mean, in order to, uh, I'm thinking of something like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, like that's, that. that's just, I'm saving those for just, the end. Okay. I just have them in here. Okay. Okay. And here's the thing is I realized, okay, first off Mia culpa, I've never seen the Lawrence Olivier, Olivier Hamlet. That's Neither have big, I. There's a number of, uh, there's a whole bunch of Shakespeare adaptations I haven't seen, but that seems like the big one that I've never seen. That is the big one. That's that one best picture that year. Um, and that is sort of when people think of, Olivier as this mm-hmm. amazing Shakespearean actor. I mean, he did Othello. He did Richard III, which I saw many years ago, and it's very good. Um, but yes, his Hamlet is apparently the one to see. At least you'll be able to talk about some Olivier. I've got none. Okay. In fact, the first on my list is Orson Welles' 1951 Othello. Well, oh, and because you haven't seen his Macbeth, right? From, I've never uh, seen uh, from his the 40s. Scottish play. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> better safe than sorry. We don't <laughs> yeah. want to curse this podcast. Um, so, uh, well, then I'll talk about his, uh, his Macbeth, which I did last week. So I don't want to say that much about it, except okay. that uh, I do adore it. It is, it, Wells in general, uh, really embraced as a filmmaker, really embraced darkness and shadows and, mm-hmm. uh, fog and smoke and all that sort of thing. Um, but Macbeth, because 
so much of it, you know, it's not in the middle of the city. It's like castles and on the moors and that sort of thing. Um, and so it, it definitely feels, it feels like something out of, um, appropriately, I guess, in some ways, it feels like something out of, uh, the 1920s Faust. Like it just, it, it's clearly even outdoors, clearly on a soundstage, but so frankly theatrical in a way that just, but not sacrificing filmic techniques either in a way that like Wells and and a few other directors were able to, to accomplish. Uh, it just, it gives you a love of the play. It gives you a love of film. Uh, it gives you a love of theater. Uh, and you can just tell that it, you can tell it's made by someone who, makes movies now, but started in, in theater mm-hmm. because he clearly wants to evoke that as opposed to his I, Othello. I was going to say that everything you said is so different from Othello, which yes. is not theatrical. It's so sweaty and visceral and run and gun. Like it yeah. feels like an, it feels like a proto indie movie version of, yeah. of, of Shakespeare. Um, it's really, really vibrant and vital and, uh, all played up on the uh, up on the surface in a way. Well, and that's not to say that I mean he really utilizes some of those sets and costumes so that you really get a sense of majesty to it. But given how frankly lurid some of the material is, he really plays into that in a way that you didn't see much in the early fifties. Um, and I and there's that classic story, and who knows if it's actually true? Wells something of a fabulist himself and, and enjoyed playing into certain ideas. But the, the famous, uh, sequence, who is it? Uh, Rodrigo, who's about to be, uh, assassinated. Um, and it's in like a Turkish yeah. spa, yeah. Uh, Turkish bath. Um, and so you just have characters in loincloths running around one, trying to get one, trying to kill the other yeah. and all that. It's a wonderful sequence. Amazing, yeah. Um, and the, uh, <laughs> And the story goes that because Wells made Othello over four years, he would get the funding, get people together, shoot a little bit of it, run out of the money, run out of money. And so he would go and get an acting job and all that. So it took four years. And so uh, all kinds of budget issues. So the day that they were going to do that, apparently the costumes didn't show up because he Wells hadn't paid the bill. <laughs> so he's like, well, look, we we have to shoot this. So what can we do? So that we don't need costumes. Hey, Turkish bath. Here we go again. That sounds a little bit too perfect for such an amazing sequence. Mm-hmm. But Wells was a genius, so it is entirely possible. And yeah, he is the type that, out of a budget issue, uh, could make one of the most memorable sequences that he's ever directed. Um, and it's and it's marvelous. And obviously, you know, of course, Wells is is playing Othello himself, playing him in blackface. Yeah, that's a pretty. Big- pretty standard theater thing at the time. Yeah. Um, and I also feel like, uh, I don't know, uh, cause we'll get into, uh, in about 50 years, exactly <laughs> 50 years. Yeah. I think we'll get into another filmic adaptation of Othello. Yeah. That is where the race issue is very much, is very race forward. Yes. Whereas this, I feel like because you've got a white actor in blackface playing yeah. Othello, um, it's, that's not really what this movie is about in a way. I mean, it, it feels like it is a little bit, I mean, yeah. it, at least I have, and you know what, this might just be the way I've always read the play, um, sure, that sure. a big part of Iago's envy comes from a feeling of entitlement, of racial entitlement. Hmm. The idea that what is this guy 
who is different, not just from me, but everybody else around. And he has this beautiful wife. How is, you know, how is he entitled to that? Mm. Um, I'm going to do what I can to destroy that. And I actually do. I, I see some of that in, okay. in the Wells okay. version. Maybe I was too blinded by my own privilege to read it that way at the time when I was 19 years old when I saw it. Possibly. Yeah. All right. So moving on to, so like I'm, because I'm going chronologically, I'm mixing straight adaptations with sure. the, um, the really fun, uh, movies that are not overtly Shakespeare, but okay. clearly based on Shakespeare, which of course Mike White made fun of in the movie Orange County. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. When they start naming movies that are based on Shakespeare and like, yeah, Every movie a student names, he's like, yeah, yes. <laughs> um, all right. So I'm talking about 1956's Forbidden Planet. Damn right, Forbidden Planet. Which, which is, is a great movie. And I'm also Inspired by The Tempest, the for Tempest. those that don't I'm know. I'm also realizing I am so – look, I come on this podcast. I talk about movies. <laughs> I pretend to be smart. Mm-hmm. When it comes to Shakespeare, I, I don't I, – I haven't read most of this shit. I know The Tempest – more from Forbidden Planet. Oh, sure. Uh, and another one we'll get to later um, than I do from ever having actually read or seen The Tempest. In fact, I can think of, off the top of my head, only one time I've ever seen a Shakespeare play performed. And that oh. was, I saw, I think it was at one of these, uh, the International Thespian Society things when we were in high school. Someone did a Midsummer Night's, Summer's Night Dream. Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes. I fell asleep during it. That's the one time I've ever seen Shakespeare in the theater, and I fell asleep during it, and it was performed by high schoolers. That was a good performance, though. I don't remember. I was um, asleep. Uh, was it uh, Nick Bottom? Is that the name of the character? Yeah, I, Kevin that, Klein. That's him. Uh, well, we'll that get to act, that later. That actor did a great job. Um, yeah, uh, my experience with Shakespeare is is limited to, you could say, the, the biggies. You know, I've read Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, Othello, Richard the third and Macbeth. I feel like I might've read another one in there. I don't remember what it is, but like I haven't even read King Lear. I haven't seen any version of King Lear. Um, uh, my knowledge of the, of the, of that play uh, outside of the big, uh, plot points is, is very limited. Um, and so, but as far as, but I've, I've read those plays. I outside the only version of Hamlet that I've seen is the one with, uh, Ethan Hawke, uh, which we'll get to obviously later. Which I've never seen. I haven't it's even my, seen Michael that. Michael directed that. Is that who it is? Yeah. I don't remember, but, uh, I haven't um, even seen, yeah, the Zeffirelli version, but, um, yeah, neither have I, um, but I've seen another one we'll talk about later. The only Shakespeare play I've ever read is not one of the main ones. Okay. I read Titus Andronicus. Sure. Simply because I loved Julie Tamer's movie yeah. as much. We'll get to Which that. we'll get to. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Forbidden Planet. Um, it's such it, a, it's a great the, sci-fi. It's a, yeah. yeah. But the premise of The Tempest is that <laughs> the premise of The Tempest. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't actually rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> the flagon with the dragon, with the dragon has the brew that is true. Um, anyway. The premise of The Tempest is that there's a, a guy and his daughter, and they live alone on an island, and uh, some people shipwreck on the island, and this guy's like, don't trust these outsiders, but then the daughter falls in love with one of them. Mm-hmm. That's There's more to it than that, because yeah. Shakespeare's plays are all four and a half hours <coughs> long or whatever, but that's and the there's basic a, thrust. Yeah. And right? there's a creature called uh, Caliban, right, I right, believe. Right. Um, and so uh, the, temp- or the Forbidden Planet changes it from an island to... It's not just a clever name, yeah. a planet. Yeah. And uh, Leslie Nielsen uh, <laughs> and some other 
uh, serious character actors because that's what Leslie Nielsen was at the time. Very much so. There's a, the whole reason, uh, and I know listeners of a certain age think this is common knowledge, but to yeah. younger people like who maybe only know Leslie Nielsen as a funny actor, the whole reason it was funny that he was an airplane yeah. is that he was a serious like, yeah. character actor. Uh, and then he made a whole career out of doing what he did in airplane. So this is a great example to see the Leslie, the pre comedy, the pre yeah. police squad, pre pre airplane, uh, Leslie Nielsen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So he and a bunch of other, uh, American astronauts crash land on a planet. That's, uh, a guy and his daughter and a robot, a robot, mm-hmm. uh, live there and they, uh, they get into adventures. And there, <laughs> and there is a monster in that as well. Monsters of the id, as that's they right, say. The uh, and it, it really is like, it would be very easy to look at Forbidden Planet and just think that it is in many ways just just a hokey standard 50s sci-fi. And in many ways it is, but it's also – I mean it's inspired by classical proven source material mm-hmm. and I think it does it really well. It's, yeah, it's I think really it's a good. really effective film. It is a really good movie. All right. Uh, jumping ahead to 1961, the first of uh, not I mean the first we'll be talking about, not certainly not the first adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. The first of uh, a few we'll be talking about today is West Side Story. Yeah, um, which uh, as most Romeo and Juliet, do you remember the uh, there was an Onion article uh, forever ago that was like daring theater director sets Shakespeare play in time and place that it was originally intended yes. yeah. <laughs> because like that's everything is updated. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, West Side Story takes place. It's 1961. It takes place at roughly contemporary mm-hmm. times in New York. Uh, <coughs> and there's a street gang of whites and a street gang of Puerto Ricans mm-hmm. and, uh, the jets and the sharks. Sure. Um, classic, NHL Western Conference matchup, <laughs> um, and uh, and yeah, of course, a, a dude from one and a lady from the other mm-hmm. uh, fall in love. A love that you know they're star crossed, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Uh, West Side Story. I mean, it's <sighs> yes, it is absolutely inspired by Romeo and Juliet. That goes without saying. Uh, in the same way, jumping ahead a little bit, that like you know, the Lion King is inspired by Hamlet. Uh, in that. Yeah, it takes the framework of this story uh, that is, you know, tried and true, and then it does very much its own thing with it. West Side Story is a really good adaptation of Romeo and Juliet and completely its own thing, and it works Mm -hmm. on both levels, I think. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a while. I've been meaning to revisit it, Um, uh, but yeah, it's um, Shakespeare could not have foreseen filmmaking techniques and, right. and that kind of choreography of both humans and camera and production yeah. design. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a big old spectacle. And it's, you know, it speaks to, I, I sing his praises a lot because I feel like not enough people do, even though he won two Oscars, one of them for uh, West side story, but Robert wise, uh, is a solid, solid, uh, director and his, his ability, I, I rewatched West Side Story somewhat recently. And, you know, when you, it's set right there, you know, it's not, it's not a soundstage. <laughs> they're in the middle of, of the actual city. They're shooting there. Some of it is soundstage, yeah, but like, um, but like w- in the early scenes, you know, they're just like, oh, it's like a basketball court and all that. Uh, and then they start dancing and for about five, 
five seconds, it's jarring. And then the way he chooses to move the camera, suddenly this is just you're used to it and you're into it and it's perfectly fine. Do you remember forever ago when we did an episode about journeyman and everyone got mad at us because they considered journeyman to be a derogatory yeah. term? Robert Wise is not what meant. Yeah. I meant it. Like Robert Wise, I think was a great journeyman. Yeah, like when I, I think I don't remember if this is how I said it at the time, but since then when I just, when I talk about journeyman directors, it's like yeah, you think of when you think of certain movies, you think of who directed them. When you think of other movies, you think of the movies. Hmm. And when I think of West Side Story, Sound of Music, The Day the Earth Stood Still, any number of movies that Robert Wise made, I think of the movies. That is not a slight against Robert Wise. Right. You know, uh, it shows that he was able to adapt to whatever uh, genre he was working within, within so perfectly that he didn't put, and I don't think he was that interested in putting a personal stamp on it. I think he wanted to make, he wanted to do justice to the film. And I think he does. But anyway, okay, um, we can move on. Jumping ahead, still in the 60s, uh, probably the longest, the, the movie that it's been the longest since I've okay. seen. I do have a 62, Okay, go by ahead. the way. Uh, this is a Roger Corman film. It is called Tower of London, and it is essentially, it stars Vincent Price. Um, it was, re- I, I saw it as a function of this, uh, I forget what company has been releasing these box sets of Vincent Price movies. Um not all of them Corman, but many of them. Uh, and so Tower of London is this very strange co- combining of Richard III and Macbeth. Um, mm. And I think the character is officially Richard III, but uh, don't quote me on that. It's been a while since I've seen it. But just if you're familiar with the play Richard III, you're like, okay, they're using the name and he still has a lot of the same traits. But I'm noticing he's seeing the ghosts of his victims and all that. Like, so there's a lot of Macbeth in there and, and I don't know if they actually quote any actual, uh, Shakespeare in there, but it's, it's, if you're familiar with the plays really in even a perfunctory way, you understand what it is, uh, he's doing. And it's a very odd choice, but it actually works really well. Uh, and Vincent Price is marvelous. Like it's, Vincent Price is one of those actors that I he's he's almost like he's like Christopher Walken in that way. Like everybody has a sense of how Vincent Price talked and what his limitations were as an actor, which is why these uh, box sets that they've been releasing over the last few years are so important because you're able to see that, yes, he often Mm -hmm. plays villains. But within that, he could vary his performance tremendously and uh, his performance in Tower of London. It's not an amazing movie. It's definitely more interesting if you're. If you're a Corman fan, if you're a Shakespeare fan, or you're a Vincent Price fan, you're going to be happy. Mm-hmm. And if you're all three, oh, you're going to be thrilled. Vincent Price, one of the great St. Louisans. Um, <laughs> Aren't they all? <laughs> pro- well, <laughs> well you was this kid that bullied me when you, you know. <laughs> no, was, the jury might still be out on Ike Turner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, fair enough. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of good Exception that proves there. the rule, Dave. Yeah. That's what I say. Yeah. That's what I say. Uh, all right, so next, uh, 1968's. Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Mm. I saw this in high school, like a lot of people. Uh, you know, my AP literature teacher yeah. showed it to us or whatever. Um, I remember being quite good, um, <coughs> even if at the time I couldn't. Like we were talking, we talked earlier about um, being the kind of young, <coughs> budding cinephile who thinks they're more sophisticated than they are. Yes. 
and are actually, you know, I'm reminded of, uh, and you and I have talked about this before, Roger Ebert's review of Congo, a movie you love. Uh, yes. Um, and he liked a lot, too. Yeah, and that's what he says, is he says, false sophisticates will hate it, real sophisticates will love it. Fuck and, yeah. And I feel like teenage me was a false sophisticate, and a lot of Shakespeare oh, sure. adaptations in general weren't going to, uh, speak to me, especially straightforward ones like Franco Zeffirelli's. Exactly, uh, Romeo and Juliet. There's a reason that Onion thing is funny because yeah. so many people, whether they be theater teachers or filmmakers, are like, how can we, you know, how can we? Aside from saying that Shakespeare was the first rapper, how can we <laughs> get to a younger audience? Uh, and Zeffirelli uh, is just like, no, we're just gonna. We're just going to make it and let the the passion of the main performances and the but, appeal of these of these attractive young people really come through. You say young people. I think that's that's the main thing that's that stands out about Romeo and, about the 1968 Romeo and Juliet is how young the actors are. Yeah, because uh, we forget the characters are supposed to be like 15 years old or something, right. you know, um, and that's the thing. Like uh, uh, we keep going back. You know, we find these weird. Uh, um, through, through lines, lines yeah. whenever we talk about these topics and one of the things that keeps coming back to me is my sort of like this our growing sophistication and sure. and, and um, now it's I, I, I don't even think twice about it but there was a time when I didn't realize that Romeo and Juliet was about two dumb kids yeah <laughs> you know and that like this isn't actually a you know, write it in the stars, eternal love. This is just right. two dumb kids who fall hard the way the dumb kids do yeah. and don't have any sense of the future and, and both end up dead because of it. Well, and that's the thing is it's, it's considered a tragedy and mm-hmm. yes, it's romantic in the way that, you know, first love or love at first sight, whatever the way that that can be romantic. Absolutely. But, and the tragedy I mean, you could say that the tragedy is miscommunication, but within Uh that miscommunication is the inherently melodramatic reactions to things. And immaturity. And immaturity. This idea that, like, if I can't, like, oh, my gosh, my my lover of, I don't know, a week and a half is is dead – how could I possibly go on? How I'm feeling now – and, of course, you're going to be heartbroken, but, like – how I'm feeling now is how I'm going to feel forever. So I might as well just drink this poison. Yeah. I'm not even, I don't even have time for the funeral. All right. And then, okay, now that person's dead. Oh, the other person wasn't dead, but now that they see that their lover's dead, well, what's the point? Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, it's a very, like the tragedy is that impulsiveness yeah. uh, and, and the inability, again, it's sad. That goes without saying, but like the, the inability to, plan ahead or anything like that. And it's not just in the, in the final choices of the characters. It's all throughout. Um, and even, even other characters as well, like Tybalt is angry is, I think he's a little bit older than the characters, but he's still young as well and very angry in that and, and impulsive and that sort of thing. So, and yeah, uh, the Zeffirelli, I haven't seen it in many years. I saw it first in high school, like everybody else. Uh, and then, uh, several years later and, uh, yeah, it's just a, it's not going to it's not going to win any points for originality but when a movie is that good and that mm-hmm. committed to what it is who gives a shit you know <laughs> i mean it's not everything has to be 
if you do it right, it feels original. You know, it feels immediate. Um, And by the way, I feel I realize that we skipped a a big one from 65, which is Orson Welles chimes at midnight. Um, Oh, that's you. Yeah. You got to talk about that. Yeah. That's uh, Um, an adaptation of a bunch of shit. Right. Which is why looking at the way I organize my list, I set it aside along with Tower of London. But since we're going in chronological order. uh, Yeah. So I, I don't have time to go into everything, but there's a lot of history to Chimes at Midnight. Uh, Wells, when he was young, when he was uh, working in the theater, so he was like 20, 21, and he loved the character of Falstaff. In the opinion of many Wells biographers, and I would say I agree, uh, everything about the character of Falstaff is just Orson Welles' father, uh, 100%, uh, and the idea that Wells essentially disowned his father, because his father was like this drunken lout and Wells was a genius, not unlike Prince Hal and Falstaff. And like, I know the not old man and stuff like that. And then Falstaff essentially dies of a broken heart. And Wells' father died when he was 15. There's, there's some parallels there. And I think Wells was very aware of it anyway. So when he was in his twenties, uh, he put together this thing where Falstaff, who's essentially a supporting character in, in like five plays, um, Wells said, okay, what if we take all of Falstaff's scenes, put them together with some other scenes to kind of add connective tissue and just do this like four hour play, which will be called five Kings. But now Falstaff is the lead and he, and we are seeing these various reigns of monarchs through the eyes of this character. Uh, the play was an absolute disaster because Wells is not, was not good at planning things. Um, but clearly it stayed with him for a long time. And then eventually he just sort of grew into the part, uh, in many ways, uh, including his level of maturity. And I think his understanding of the character. Um, and so, yeah, you get, he cut it down significantly. So now rather than including like, you know, the merry wives of Windsor, uh, now it's essentially just, uh, Henry the fourth and Henry the fifth. Um, but Falstaff is now the lead essentially and Wells plays him and it is an astonishing movie. I remember I saw a really muddy VHS copy when we were in college, but it still was astounding. Uh, thankfully, uh, criterion got, you know, put together a really good transfer. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily a criterion fanboy, but you do the one thing you can, mostly count on is if they've got something that was hard to get, you're going to get a better version of it than you've seen, uh, than, than was previously available. And so, Hmm. uh, if you haven't seen chimes at midnight, I think I, you don't have to be a Shakespeare fan to like it. Um, I don't think you need to be a Wells fan to like it either. I think it's just an effective bit of filmmaking on every level. And I think it's probably Wells best performance. All right. So I'm jumping into 1985. Hang on a second. Skip, skipping the entire 1970s. Um, that is probably, that's probably right uh, for me. Hang on a second. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's correct. Um, and I'm going to talk about uh, Kira Kurosawa's Ron, which I haven't seen in a long time. Uh, but it's the only version of King Lear that I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, unless you're counting uh, Fox's Empire, which I only watched the first season of. Okay. Uh, but, um, yeah, so it's been a long time since I've seen Ron, but, uh, weirdly, I was just thinking about it, uh, earlier today because I was reading, did you see this, um, 
uh, you can read it on like the DGA's website, but it was a conversation with Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese. Oh, oh uh, yes, yes. Okay. I don't know if you read it. I didn't. But, um, Tarantino was talking about the violence at the end of ta- the end of ta- end of taxi taxi driving initially, mm-hmm. and they had to cut it down or whatever. And Scorsese was talking about how when Paul Schrader wrote that, he was picturing something essentially more Japanese, like more oh, stylized yeah. blood splatter on the walls type of thing. And Martin Scorsese kind of saying, uh, basically, what he was saying is like he grew up in a neighborhood where real deadly violence was an actual threat all the yeah. time, and so it isn't. It, it wasn't in him to make it that way. Yeah, it's not this beautiful uh, thing. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, and so the first thing, even though he never mentions Ron, the first thing I thought of is Ron. Is mm-hmm. that Ron is uh, sometimes a very violent movie, uh, but one that is always stylized sure. and, and beautiful. Um, and it's very theatrical. It's the more the Macbeth, Orson Welles Macbeth and the Orson Welles Othello sure. version of, uh, uh, of King Lear. But yeah, it's, a, it's one of those big, bold sort of movie movies uh, that I've always wanted. I've never seen in a theater. I missed mm-hmm. it. There was a restored version that played almost 10 years ago now. It played yeah. the new art that I missed. Um, but it seems the kind of movie that would really play well in a theater. And it's interesting. Uh, my limited exposure to Kurosawa, which is about, like I think, five or six films from the uh, 50s, um, and I guess late 40s. I mean, obviously... I think of his film certainly from an acting standpoint as heightened because of this, the, it's just the acting style. Um, but when I think of the violence and I think of the action, I actually think of a very naturalistic way, you mm. know, like I think of stuff from seven samurai or hidden fortress where in many, in many cases there isn't even any music behind it. It's just, uh, it's often quite very quiet and you can hear birds chirping, uh, as these, as these characters like stand size each other up and then, go for it. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, but from what I've seen, like I've seen clips of, of Ron, it's like, Oh yeah, he's definitely maybe with, you know, I don't think I've seen any of his color films. So I think maybe he thought Mm. I am going to just play into the, the theatricality of this and not have it really mimic reality at all. Uh, yeah. And Ron also feels, I mean, we're getting away from the Shakespeare part of it, but just filmmaking terms, it feels like that kind of, uh, auteur with a budget type of movie that we see now, you know, that, well, I don't know if Annapurna even exists anymore, but <coughs> the kind of movies that Annapurna was financing yeah. recently, just sort of like, like Paul Thomas Anderson movies and, and David o. Russell movies that are like, it feels very distinct and idiosyncratic and it feels like it's coming from an auteur and it always also feels real big and expensive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I feel like there are like miles of Dolly track laid for yeah. Ron. Um, uh, there's something else. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's other Kurosawa Shakespeare adaptations that I haven't seen. I've never seen Throne of Blood and I've never seen. Holy shit. Uh, the Throne Bad of Sleep Blood. Well. I forgot about Throne of Blood. I love Throne of okay. Blood. I, so like, you know, we're. What year is like, that? I don't remember actually. Um, but yeah. Oh, I knew I was missing one and I knew I was missing, uh, uh, frankly, a, a Japanese one. Um, but I couldn't. Place it. I, I okay. So yeah, I assumed I was thinking of Ron, which I hadn't seen. Yeah, Throne of Blood. How stupid of me. Um, so that's it's, another Macbeth. It's another Macbeth, and it is, uh, and that one, and this one definitely is uh, more stylized uh, because he's really he's embracing the supernatural uh, quality of mm-hmm. it, um, and so there are. Uh, 
there are long stretches uh, of characters, you know, walking through the fog, very similar to the Wells version in that regard. Um, what's interesting is the lady Macbeth character here is because he's, he's a, he, like he did with so many things, he adapts it into, you know, feudal Japan. Right. Um, and the lady Macbeth here is not, she's not nearly as forceful as the lady Macbeth in the play, you know, she is probably in, in, in a way that is probably truer to truer to the time period. She's very quiet, very meek. She doesn't shame her husband or anything like that. She just very quietly makes suggestions, Hmm. just little things. And then he's the one and it's, and it's Tashira Mifune. So of course it's a very big performance. Uh, and hers is very small. So like he's the one that's enacting all this stuff and she's just, not literally, but like perched on his shoulder hmm. and just making insinuations. And it is a really interesting, uh, uh, interpretation of that character. And it also, um, the, the, uh, the Macbeth character's eventual downfall is a really spectacularly put together, uh, uh, action sequence. Um, yeah, I love Throne of Blood and I'm, I'm cursing myself for forgetting it. Well, we got to it anyway. So yes. you, you can stop cursing yourself. Uh, moving ahead to 1990, you mentioned it earlier, but Rosencrantz and Gillen are, are dead yeah. is a film adaptation of a Tom Stoppard play that is an adaptation of Hamlet. Yeah, so it's, an adaptation of a specific part of Hamlet. Yeah, it is the story of Hamlet from the point of view of Rosencrantz and Gillen two right. kind of minor characters, um, which weirdly, uh, you mentioned before, and we'll, get to, we'll mention The Lion King later, but The Lion King is a Hamlet adaptation, mm-hmm. sort of. And Timon and Pumbaa are kind of uh, a little th- bit, yeah. Not really, but <coughs> apparently, in one of the direct-to-video sequels, they did a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, a Timon and Pumbaa version of the Lion King. Really, that's apparently. fun. Yeah, I, I um, uh, listeners I confirm or deny that. that, please. We could also just Google it. Uh, Who's got the time? <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is uh, very much up my alley mm-hmm. um, because. It's a movie about two characters who are inconsequential to the plot and only <coughs> exist to be killed. Yeah. And it's about them sort of realizing that over the course of the movie, mm-hmm. but not they're so also because they're so locked into their roles, they can't it's not like they're real characters where that sinks in and they ever have a conversation like Oh my God! They don't have these existential conversations. Right? They have minor existential conversations about the nature of chance and 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 fortune and fate versus uh, randomness and and stuff like that. But like they're too, they're not fully free from the material enough to actually comment on it. Right? The play is commenting on it, but the characters never are able to do yeah. so. It's very funny. Yeah. They're, it's they're sometimes pretty, very dark. They're pretty dim-witted. Um, in a way. Would you, would you I mean, but they're, granted, they're I haven't very, seen it in a long time, like, but yes. They're clueless. I don't sure. know if I would say dim-witted because they have, like, they have deep-ish conversations. Yes. But they are clueless about what is going on at any given time. Yes, okay. That's true. So I don't know if I would call them dim-witted. But yeah, they are clueless. Yeah, uh, but yeah, yeah. I haven't seen. I, admittedly, I haven't seen it since high school, and I so I think I I probably read it as 
they're dumb, but just because they're not aware of what we're aware of doesn't right. mean that they are dumb. So, yeah, I'm sure I would probably read it differently now if I were to watch it. Uh, it's really good. Um, next, jumping ahead one year, I've got Peter Greenaway's Prospero's Books, which is the other Tempest adaptation that I've seen. And this is um, uh, Prospero is the uh, father of the young woman who falls in love with the shipwrecked yeah. person or whatever. And Prospero's Books is essentially just told from his point of view. I don't think we get like scenes of the, his daughter falling in love with the enemy. We do. I don't remember, mm-hmm. but all what I remember is that it's very, it is like peak Peter Greenaway. Yes. It's, um, a lot of <coughs> sort of frames within frames and it's not really interested in narrative cohesion. It's right. more, uh, of a, uh, just a feature length, uh, experiment. I mean, you've got John Gilgood as Prospero hmm. um, doing, he's got all of Prospero's monologues and he's, uh, it's really a centerpiece for John Gilgood talking for an hour and a half for the most part. You, you, could, do wor- you could do worse than yeah, that. Yeah, you can't really go go wrong, um, but you've also got a lot of uh, strange sort of sexual Peter Greenaway type of uh, I- imagery uh, going on at the same time. Uh, it's a really cool movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's oh, Mark not, Rylance is in it. Uh, oh, I didn't know who that was when I saw yeah. that. Um, I would say it is not. Um, well, I, I am uh, Battleship Retention li- listeners are not beginners when it comes to uh, art, art house cinema. Sure. So yeah, this is an intermediate to advanced, intermediate to advanced level <laughs> movie. It is, uh, um, but uh, definitely worth checking out if you've liked Peter Greenaway's work before, especially. But I think the it only makes, I mean, like the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover feels absolutely commercial oh, okay. compared to Prospero's books. <laughs> Got is it. The, the point that I'm trying to okay. make. Okay. Uh, all right, 1993, Kenneth Brenna's Much Ado About Nothing, yeah. which I saw in a theater class in high school. Me too. Have, n- have not seen since. Well, I remember enjoying it. Obviously, being a th- uh, high school student, I enjoyed Michael Keaton the most. Uh, and and Denzel Washington, actually. I thought he was great. Well, the thing is, I mean, this is much about nothing is one of Shakespeare's quote-unquote comedies. Mm-hmm. But I think, I, like, the Michael Keaton character is the one who feels like, okay, we're watching a comedy. Like, the point of these scenes is to make us laugh. Yes. Whereas, <clears throat> I, I feel like... In Shakespearean terms, a lot of time, comedy just means the stakes aren't as high. Yeah, it just but, means everything's a little lighter. But it's still, like, about people being cruel and double-crossing each other and getting their hearts broken. Like, yeah. much about nothing is, can still be kind of an upsetting story sure. uh, for a comedy. Yeah, um, it just means that kingdoms aren't fall, aren't crumbling. <laughs> right, but, you've, yeah, people are getting their hearts broken. Keanu yeah. Reeves is, uh, he is, he plays the villain. <laughs> Uh, I know he's the villain because he refers to himself yeah. as such. He says, I am a plain dealing villain. Uh, it's one of the lines that has always stuck with me from that, that movie because it's such a weird, like, uh, hey, look, I may be a villain. Yeah. I'm not going to bullshit you, but <laughs> I'm a plain dealing villain. Do you, so, you know, uh, I know that we all like Keanu Reeves now, um, <laughs> but, you know, it's this was, this was at a, stage in his career like uh, this is uh, a year after bram stoker's dracula uh where he would play things that i think are outside of his range yeah i don't think it holds up all that well yeah 
Um, but it, I mean, it's Kenneth Branagh and and Emma Thompson and and a good cast all around. But like the two of them leading the way is uh, is yeah. Kenneth Branagh. He's in many ways, it's it's it was inevitable that he was going to play Laurence Olivier uh, in My Week with Marilyn uh, because right. outside of of Olivier um, and maybe Wells, now that I think about it, uh, very few other like filmmakers have done more for to to like champion Shakespeare than Kenneth Branagh uh, and doing it as in in as many ways as possible, like not merely. Uh, you know, because he did Henry V, which I've never seen, the 1989 Henry V, uh, in which he, he plays the character. Uh, and then I haven't seen his Hamlet. So, like, he he, he does the, the big ones, and then he does the, the light comedies as well. So I, I do think that uh, Brana clearly is trying to sort of champion Shakespeare. And by incorporating Michael Keaton, you know, Batman Beetlejuice uh, and, yeah. and uh, Denzel Washington and... Keanu Reeves, he definitely, I think, is trying to, and who knows if the studio maybe chose some of those, but uh, really trying to appeal to a younger audience. And uh, certainly, theater teachers at the time were just <laughs> were thrilled. Yeah, you can you get to like, watch. Yeah, we can burn Keanu through Reeves, a week with this. Keanu Reeves has got his shirt off. Uh, people are going to love it. The, absolutely. Uh, all right, 1994, The Lion King. We already mentioned it. It's a yeah. very loose adaptation of Hamlet, but yeah, the idea of the the prince, the heir to the throne, whose father dies, and then his evil uncle swoops in. Yeah, that's pretty much the setup of Hamlet and the setup of this. Yeah, and and I think it's uh, Lion King works well for me uh, in a lot of ways. I didn't see it since I was a kid. I'd say primarily because of uh, Scar, but now that I think about it, uh, the Mufasa character who is not in the film very long, but like uh, you know, like Hamlet's uh, uh, father, uh, the the ghost you know we do see mufasa a little bit later and his absence looms large over over everything um to such an extent that i used to view this as almost a uh as a flaw but now i i wonder if they meant for this to be the case that in a way it's like oh we had james earl jones and now we're left with Matthew Broderick, which, which undoubtedly is how the character of Simba feels, which is like, that's who I have to be. And I can't, you know, they, they specifically, Matthew Broderick does a good job. Uh, but they specifically like vocally, you can't hope to match James Earl Jones and Matthew Broderick actually doesn't even have that deep of a voice at all. And so, and that's who he has to try to, to emulate. And he just feels like it's, it's, it's out of my depth. Like the, the absence of my father is way more palpable than me, uh, and, and town and tangible. Um, and, uh, and then you have another great vocal performance with Jeremy Irons. So, uh, and it's uh, it's a pretty dramatically effective, and and it's a film that I that I remember I, I did like for a long time. But uh, as tends to happen, I don't think I realized just how effective it was until I saw the quote unquote live action remake. <laughs> uh, which it's not like it's it's not, it's not. okay. All yeah. right, despite well tried despite, territory, yeah. despite Caleb Deschanel being the. DP, uh, sure. yeah, the, as, as far as I can tell, and maybe it's, I think in many cases it's not true, but I think some of the landscapes were actually there. Okay. Okay. I, I think that's I haven't it. seen it. Yeah. Uh, I'll price. 
All right. Um, 1996 is a banner year. Okay. You've got another Hamlet, the one you said you hadn't seen, the Kenneth Branagh one, which right. is about four hours long. Yeah. And it I has a it. hell of a cast. Hell of a cast. I saw it. I really liked it at the time because I think, in retrospect, I think I liked it because it's very showy. Sure. Um, well, that is, that's Kenneth Branagh as a director, and there's nothing wrong yeah. with that. And sometimes I really like it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that I would like Hamlet as much if I revisited it. It feels very indulgent, but sometimes mm-hmm. I like movies that are indulgent. Sure. So um, I don't really have much to say about it, except, yeah, it has an incredible cast. You've got, um, obviously, Kenneth Brennan is playing Hamlet. You've yeah. got Kate Winslet mm-hmm. as Ophelia. Uh, you got a, I don't know, there's a Derek Jacobi in there. There's a... You got, sh- you got to have a Derek Jacobi in there. Yeah. <laughs> What's that um, Mr. Show quote? If you're going to make a sketch comedy show, you're going to have some rat feces in there. Something like that. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So uh, Julie Christie is in it. Mm. Uh, Richard Attenborough. Uh, let's see. Um, Billy Crystal is in it. Judy Dench. Gerard Depardieu. Right. Billy Crystal is the... Wait, is he the Alas Poor Yorick I believe guy, so, yeah. Or is that... Because Robin Williams... Who does Robin Williams play? I don't remember. But let's see. John Gilgut is in it. Charlton Heston. Um... Jack Lemon, wow! Oh, John Mills, how fun! John Mills, uh, who is in um, Hobson's Choice, okay, um, the one that is always saying "buy gum." Uh, Rufus Sewell is in it. Timothy Spall, son of a bitch! Rufus I feel like Sewell. What's he up to? Uh, oh wait, he's on. He's on um, the, a show, right? Yeah, he's on the uh, What If Nazis One show. Oh yes, the Man in the High Castle. That's what it's called. Um, right? Yeah, Robin Williams plays uh, uh, Osric. Yeah. Uh, and then also 1996, the talk of all the kids and the soundtrack that was in every uh, bedroom stereo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boz Lerman's William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. That's right. <laughs> um, which is a movie that I did not <laughs> like at the time because I was too cool for school. And now I've become a total Boz Lerman nut and I like everything. That I've seen. Never saw Australia. Yeah. Neither did I. Anyway. But, um, uh, yeah, I tend to like uh, his stuff a lot. And I do like his Romeo plus Juliet, even though it is sometimes sometimes the strain to maintain the Shakespearean language, despite the yeah. alternate universe but present day setting. Yeah. Uh, like their it, guns are called swords yes, and like the, stuff. Yes, like sword is the brand name of the yeah. gun, and then you make sure to like zoom in on the gun that you're seeing the word sword <laughs> yeah. on the gun. I seem to recall the first time I, I saw that they were doing that. Uh, mentally, and this is audio, so listeners won't be able to see it, but you will. Essentially, I was just like, all right. <laughs> uh, As if to say... I'll allow it, but watch yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, but it, but I mean, th- okay. As as it's it's very different than the Zeffirelli version. Um, he is trying very hard to to bring a very specific crackling kind of energy to it, and I think he does. Um, I think he's got a really great cast to work with, and I well, think he shoots it in a way that that makes it vibrant and yeah. And uh, I think some people. Certainly some critics at the time kind of derided it as, uh, you know, like an MTV Romeo and Juliet. And they would say that like, and they would say that, yeah, in like a pejorative way. But that's the thing. And I think I felt the same way. Here's, here's the, here's the issue. Um, 
I think we have a lot of us, especially those who consider ourselves, I keep using this word sophisticated, but sophisticated, you know, well-rounded, elevated movie mm-hmm. uh, or culture, I don't know, uh, uh, aficionados or just cultural consumers. There's a tendency to look at the things that are popular among teenagers sure. and maybe especially the things that are popular among teenage girls mm-hmm. as being frivolous, right. as being disposable, <laughs> as not being serious. And so the casting of Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, who mm-hmm. seemed at the time like flash in the pan, made for magazine cover, <coughs> teen idol types. Sure. Right? Starring in it. If I could if I could go back in time from the present day and tell my Hopefully, if I could go back in time, I'd fix a lot of other shit in my life and in the world. Sure. But one thing I'd be like, no, look forward 20 years. Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes are both great, great actors. I think the downside is that while I think they they do okay emotionally with the characters, um, I think they're not great with the language. Um, Okay. And you've got Pete Postlethwaite there. I think you've got a very good Paul Sorvino. Um, as her dad, as her, as, as Capula. Yeah. Right. And then, um, it's, uh, Brian Dennehy as Montague who does, and he That's doesn't, right. he's not, yeah. Him. Uh, I and, and, and I for some reason he's the one who, yeah. Uh, and John Leguizamo, I think does a, a uh-huh. really great job. So I do think that it's, it's unfortunate because I think they, <sighs> it's tough. I'm not going to say they're the weak, the, the weak links, because that suggests that that the film is strong, except for them. It's not that. I think, I think it's you're that, right about the language thing. Yeah, but they're still. And this is oh, the they're point still that totally to committed. Make. Yeah, not just committed, just as movie stars. These are both people who are made to be in front of cameras in a sure, way. Sure. And so, even though they may struggle with the language uh, compared to some of the uh, older <clears> and more seasoned actors like a Pete Postlethwaite. No. Um, uh, one of cinema's uh, all-time great drunks. Um, <laughs> not to drag a dead man's name through the mud, but he was uh, apparently one hell of a drunk. I could see that. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I, I think I knew that reputation, but then uh, on the Tobolowski files, mm. uh, um, Stephen Tobolowski told a story <laughs> about making something with Pete Fossilweight and being like him being at the hotel bar until the lights came on, sloshed out of his mind, and then being on set at 7 a.m. the next morning, just ready to work. Like, sure. Complete, like he, uh, not just yeah. <laughs> really practice drunk. Just <laughs> anyway. the, yeah, just the, uh, paying, paying homage to the late Robert Shaw. <laughs> yeah. Just being like, all right, that's how the pros did it. Um, but yeah, so you've got, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, DiCaprio and Claire Danes, uh, yeah, whatever their, uh, lack of facility with the language, they're still burning up the screen cause they're movie stars. Uh, and they, yeah, and they have a great deal of, yeah, a great deal of chemistry. Um, but, uh, real quick, uh, the fact that I just mentioned Robert Shaw, this has nothing to do with anything, but it's very funny to me. Uh, I was watching, um, on YouTube, a clip of Norm Macdonald on like Howard Stern many years ago. And he was telling the story about how he was, uh, he was on who wants to be a millionaire and he almost ma- got to the end. He got to like $500,000 and then didn't get the last question. Um, so I think he opted out. Okay. Um, and, uh, he was playing for Paul Newman's charity. And so the fact that he made $500,000 for that charity, uh, Paul Newman like reached out, but, 
Norm Macdonald was like very flattered, but didn't want to meet him. And and then Howard Stern was like, Howard Stern's like, well, why? 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 And he's like, well, what am I gonna say to Paul Newman? You know, it's like this is Paul Newman. You know, what am I gonna be like? Be like, wow. So that was Robert Shaw, huh? Hmm. So anyway, Audrey Lang and I were hanging out. And he's, like, he's like, I don't think he knows that any of the people I know exist. Uh, and so it made me laugh quite a bit. All right. So jumping to 1999, another banner year. Uh, well, one of the great movie years, obviously. So, so I've got, heard. You've got – basically I'm going to go from – got three movies. I'm going to go from most straightforward to least straightforward. Okay. So you've got 98, you said? No, I said 99. Do you have something in 98? I do. What am I missing? In its own way. Okay. Shakespeare in Love. Oh, see, I intentionally didn't. I, I'm, you know, I, I put it there with like the dresser from 1983, which heavily incorporates King Lear, but okay. it is about somebody performing King Lear, and this is about somebody writing Romeo and Juliet. So my only reason for including and 12, it, and there's Twelfth Night stuff. Tw- in there yes, because um, of the uh, <clears throat> the, the girl gender, yeah, yeah. boy. Um. No, it's my my reason for for mentioning it is just about it's just a function of that amazing screenplay, um, and that you know they're they're using Shakespeare as a jumping off point. So obviously, when they're performing it and when he's writing it, it has to be written in a very specific way. But uh, but there's also just that wonderful moment when Jeffrey Rush is talking to to Shakespeare and 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 Will goes off on this like sonnet like thing. And, and Jeffrey was like, no, 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 prose. And, <laughs> and just, and so it's, it's written certainly with, in a certain, uh, wow. s- sort of anachronistic, uh, in a sort of a modern cadence, but still incorporating those sensibilities into it. I think it's a marvelous screenplay. Hmm. And Maybe one I that, again. I don't think I've seen it since 1998. It's, so. I, that's one that I didn't like at the time. Um, and since then I've watched, it's like, and so many people are like, oh, it, it won Best Picture over Saving Private Ryan. It's like, yeah, Saving Private Ryan probably deserved to win more. There are a number of other movies that I think deserve to win even more mm-hmm. uh, that weren't even nominated. But uh, What's 98? Gods and Monsters? Thin Red Line is Thin one Red of Line. them. Um, and Elizabeth, which I love. Oh, yeah. um, and, and then also movies that weren't in the running, like Dark City and Out of Sight. Uh, and Truman Show and that sort of thing. So, um, but nonetheless, um, I do think that uh, Shakespeare in Love, like certainly it winning a number of the awards that it did, like art direction and costume design, and uh, and then I think screenplay, like that is a that that's a film that I think Shakespeare fans would enjoy, or uh, th- maybe the snobbish ones would be like, this is a travesty or something. Mm-hmm. But I feel like if you, it, it really does feel like a, a remarkably affectionate, uh, homage to, to Shakespeare. But anyway, oh, so I've got three going to go for most straightforward, which is a midsummer night's dream sure. with uh, another big cast. Yeah. Um, but you've got Kevin Klein, as we mentioned, as yeah. Nick bottom, you've also got, Michelle Pfeiffer, which is uh, she's an actor that I feel like you can't go wrong putting Michelle Pfeiffer in your movie. Yeah, and it's to this day weird that she's yeah. not in more stuff. Yeah. she's kind of come back a little bit, a little bit with then, Mother and uh, uh, Murder on the Orient Express, mm-hmm. and yeah, but and then she was in the Bernie Madoff miniseries. Was that, oh, okay. or was that a made-for-TV movie? I can't. Remember. I didn't see it. I, it was one. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, Father but, of Lies is that uh, what it's called? Oh, you remember better than I do. I uh, might be way off on that. But yeah, I, uh, <coughs> Wizard of Lies, I think. Okay, um, 
So yeah, Midsummer Night's Dream again. We're talking about a lot of the, we keep talking about movies that I saw once when they came out, um, and yeah. So I think I saw Midsummer Night's Dream. I, here's the okay. We we should probably wrap up pretty soon. So I'm just going to tell a story. We're not going to talk about Midsummer Night's Dream. I'm just tell a dumb story. Okay. Where this was, uh, uh, you know, uh, sit around the campfire, young ones, and uh, let me tell you about renting movies at video stores. <laughs> and I would. Um, uh, I would rent movies at a place called Star Video, which I eventually ended up working at uh, in Valley Park, Missouri, uh, a suburb of St. Louis. And uh, I had like a, you know, you had a membership thing and you could earn mm-hmm. rentals. And I would never, I never rented new releases. I would always rent old stuff because I was trying to learn more about old movies and also just because they were cheaper. So I'd always rent older stuff. But once you had enough, you'd work up enough points where you could get a free new release rental. Mm-hmm. And I remember using my free new release rental on <coughs> a Midsummer Night's Dream, my girlfriend being at the time being like, really? <laughs> and I was like, wow, I want to see it. Um, it's a, it's a perfectly fine adaptation. Yeah, I, I think it works. Yeah. And again, yes, I also have not seen it in 20 years. Um, but I do remember really liking I when I think of it, I think about the art direction and mm-hmm. the just the general tone and mood of it. It just feels it feels very uh I think of it as like soft focus. Um and it just it feels very dreamlike, uh, in a way. Um and I think of it as a very this sounds like you know, damning with faint praise. Uh, it, it's a very pleasant film, um, and extremely watchable partially because of that cast, but also I think just because of the way that it's, it's put together. I think it's a very effective film. Strange career from, uh, Michael Hoffman, the director. Okay. What else did he do? Who is this guy? So he had previously made a lot of stuff you haven't really heard of. He'd made soap dish. Oh yeah. Okay. And then he made a movie that I think I, would probably find execrable now. Uh, 1996's One Fine Day. But it does have Michelle Pfeiffer in it. Sure. Um, but that's uh, a George Clooney movie from before George Clooney learned how to act. And uh, just, and it was all about tucking his chin and <laughs> yeah, sort of. having, hang on, having weird pauses. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it was always at the very last, the very last word. And then he directed The Emperor's Club. So he worked with... Oh. With Michelle Pfeiffer before Midsummer Night's Dream, mm-hmm. and then with Kevin Klein again yeah. after The Emperor's Club, which is a movie that I never saw. <coughs> it's it's just it's a it's a Dead Poets Society ripoff, but I but, I do like Kevin Klein as a performer. What I remember about The Emperor's Club is that that was about the time that the St. Louis International Film Festival got I don't know where what the board is that decides that you're an accredited film festival, and so you get to put those little laurels on oh, the sure, yeah. thing. And so I remember the Emperor's Club being the first like DVD or VHS or whatever that I saw on the shelves that had the little laurel that said St. Louis oh. International Film Festival. And you're like, we made it. Yeah. And then in 2005, Michael Hoffman directed a movie that I really like, and you really don't, uh, called Game Six. Oh. <laughs> you know what? I'm I'm absolutely willing to entertain the notion that I would like it more now. Okay. Uh, you know, 2006, so let's see. I'm 24 at that point. I'm a very specific type of film watcher and it is very possible that I would be I would thinking back on it, I would probably be better able to digest the actual tone that the director is going for. Okay. It's kind of a, an odd surreal tone in yeah, some ways. Much. Yeah. Um, so I think I probably would appreciate it more now. Certainly Michael Keaton's performance. Um, 
But yeah, oh boy, at the time, no thank you. Yeah, yeah. And then the last thing he made was a movie called The Best of Me with James Marsden and Michelle Monaghan, which I've never oh, heard of. Yeah. All right, so next up, 1999, this is bridging the gap between traditional and non-traditional. It's yeah. traditional in the sense that it's sort of old-timey and has it maintains the language. Yeah. But it also is totally fucked up in every way, and that's Julie Taymor's Titus. Yes. A movie that I unabashedly love, even though I can see people rolling their eyes at it, um, because it is not doing anything by half measures. It is a no. movie that sets the story of Titus Andronicus, <coughs> I would say, everywhere throughout the last 2,000 years of human culture, mm. right? It, yeah. It, like, it, it intentionally is anachronistic all the time. It's, it's, it sort of feels like, okay, we're in ancient Rome, but, like, oh, also they have pinball machines and they ride motorcycles. It's, and I, I adore it. Yeah. Um, it, it's a film that I just wasn't ready for, and yet, and not, you know what, not unlike, oddly enough, Batman the Animated Series, which seemed to take place in the 1930s and the... Tw- 2100s, you right. know, uh, like yeah. it, kind of that old school, like old school sci-fi, uh, where it's like, oh, this is where it's, it suggested the internet and all that sort of thing. It was very interesting. Um, and if you do it right, you don't even question it. And as yeah. a 10 year old watching Batman, the animated series, I didn't question it at all. It just felt right. And Julie Taymor, because it, everything is just so big and ridiculous I don't question it. Yeah. I I love it. I treasure it. Yeah, it's it's, and, really, it's really cool. You've got and the reveal at the end works on so many levels, including story level. So like the that play is so over the top, ridiculous, violent that when that what Julie Taymor is suggesting by the end, you're like, yeah, no, I buy it. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, she does not make any attempt to like make it respectable yeah like it is it's on trashy one hand, it's, it's a big expensive art movie it feels yeah you know challenging but it's also like you said yeah it's so trashy yeah it's so gory <coughs> uh it's so over the top and it's also it's probably where i first really remember knowing who alan cumming was sure at that at that time i know he'd done other stuff yeah. Com, uh, uh Fior was was uh, uh it's a great cast all around but i remember there are a handful of actors i was like Oh, who's th- who's that? Alan Cumming was one. Harry Lennox, obviously, mm-hmm. and uh, and Colm Fior. Yeah, but you've also got um, Jessica uh, Lange. Yeah, uh, she's great. You've got you got Jonathan Rhys Meyers, but uh, you know what? Playing playing the the type of role right. that he was born to play. Uh, all right, and then the final one from 1999 that is the least traditional. It's very uh, of the moment, modern language, everything. Yeah. That's 10 Things I Hate About You, mm-hmm. uh, which I already mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, which is an adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew. Mm. Uh, everyone loves it. I should probably revisit it. It made very little impression on me at yeah. the time. Uh, except for Heath Ledger's <clears throat> big musical number. That's the yes. thing I remember. Yeah. Uh, and I've also, I've always been a Julia Stiles fan. Sure. And, and it featured a, a young Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, as sort of the the sure. dork uh, and that sort of thing, so it's it's funny that oh, uh, Joker and Robin were in that uh, in that movie. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, Two thousand, real quick, another uh, Romeo and Juliet. You've got Romeo Must Die with the, oh, the, right. the Jet Lean. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, m- movie. Yeah, um, which I remember being very sort of. I don't know. I, I did see stylistic that, yeah. and kind of cool. Like it had that thing where. 
when Jet Li would like punch or kick someone, it would go to like it would slow down and do like an X-ray thing where you'd see their bones breaking yeah. inside their body. That was kind of cool. Anyway, which they would do in one of the final destinations. I don't remember. Oh, it was like three or four. I only saw the first three, so maybe it was four. Okay. Uh, yeah, I didn't keep up with Final Destination after number three. I, yeah, I don't know why I know that. Uh, uh, I don't remember. I, I don't know why I stopped. Why didn't <clears> I stop watching true. Final Destination movies? Yeah. <laughs> um, that t- 2001, you've got another... What movie. happened to you, man? <laughs> um, so 2001, I've got a movie that... It came up on a... Like, I was researching, like, movies based on Shakespeare. And a movie came up that I've seen, and I was like, is that? And that's Get Over It. Which is a movie, which I I have which, seen. I've I know I I don't know. But I remember that it taking. I remember it yeah. taking place amidst a high school, like drama club. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't remember is that the play they're putting on in the movie <coughs> is a Midsummer Night's Dream, and that the plot points of the movie itself take on the plot points, or at least the sort of like love triangle-y plot points of a midsummer night's dream i guess where one so. person's in love with someone who's in love with someone else that sort of thing i don't know i don't remember get over it that well you've got isn't martin short as the drama club teacher uh, yes is the main thing i remember and he has I, I i've seen the film uh i am for a short time i was odd acquaintances with the director because his dad had worked with my mom once um but uh, Tommy O'Haver, I believe his name is. That is um, yeah. And uh, but there is a wonderful. I think it was an ad lib. Who knows? But Martin Short says he's like. I think he's, he says. He goes. Martin Scorsese was telling me. Well, not no. me. It was in a magazine I read. You've got it. It was is Bobby what, De Niro. Bobby De Niro. Okay. <laughs> Bobby yeah, De Niro. Yeah. 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 I remember that. That's one of the few lines I remember. Yeah. Not the me. It was. Yeah. That Ben Foster's in love with a character named Allison, and he sings. He serenades her with Elvis Costello's oh, yeah. Allison, um, which I remember because it was probably about the time the movie came out about the time that I was probably starting to get into Elvis yeah. Costello's, but uh, that's why it stuck with me. Also, in 2001, you've got O, Tim Blake Nelson's Now, we, o. we did skip the 2000 Hamlet. Well, right. You said you wanted to mention that because yeah. I've never seen it. Michael oh, Morita, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's... Ethan Hawke. That's a present-day one. Present-day... But they're speaking... Spe- they're still speaking... Yeah, they're speaking the, the classic okay. uh, uh, style, um, albeit with um, just in in sort of modern American cadence, which just is, it's really hard to, to put those two together and have it be effective, but it's still very effective. And Ethan Hawke, I think makes a very, very good Hamlet. Like when you think of who Hamlet is as kind of melancholy and depressed and mopey, like, of course, Ethan Hawke (laughs) would, would do great at that. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. Like, you know, uh, I, I think he just accomplishes that really well. Uh, and at this point, and maybe this isn't common knowledge, but at the time, um, the the big moment, the to be or not to be, uh, is something he's saying to himself as he walks around a blockbuster video. Um, like, I remember finding that I, interesting. Yeah, I think I knew that. Um, but I, but I, it's got a, uh, a good cast, and I seem to recall it. Again, that's one that I haven't seen in 19 years. Um, well, but, I've liked uh, a lot of Michael Amory's <clears throat> other work. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think 
I feel like if I were to revisit, I think I might like it more now. And I liked it then. Including um, Marjorie Prime, which made my top 10 of yeah. 2017. And he made uh, Experimenter, Experimenter, right? Experimenter, which yeah. people liked. Oh, and he did another uh, Shakespeare. What's In that? 2014, he did Cymbeline. Oh, okay. Um, okay, so uh, then, 2001, you mentioned. O. Yes. Um, well, I've mentioned Get Over It. We've got O, which is uh, Tim Blake Nelson's modern-day... Uh, update of Othello um, coming in <coughs> at a lean 95 minutes, uh, which is not what you expect from a Shakespeare adaptation. But um, Tim Blake Nelson I, is a fascinating filmmaker. I, I mean, don't think he, I've ever seen anything else he's directed. I never saw The Gray Zone. I did. And that's, I mean, it's great, but boy, okay. it's it's rough, as one would imagine. Uh, yeah, I, I, saw, what, I saw Leaves of Grass okay. in 2009 with two Edward Norton performances. I did not see Eye of God. That I heard good things, but I didn't see it. Um, I don't know. What do you, what's your memory of O? Um, just the, the cast, primarily. Um, and it was maybe the first time that I... That I took Josh Hardnett seriously. See, this I mean, I thing, liked him in the, fal- in the faculty. But this um, is the thing that I remember, <clears throat> is that I feel like by so self-consciously making this about racism, mm-hmm. Mackay Pfeiffer, who's a very talented actor, yeah. as Othello or as Odin, I had to look mm-hmm. it up just now, I didn't remember that his name was Odin, but as Odin, um, becomes less of a character. And Josh Hartnett is almost like the most dynamic character, even though he's the villain. When you say that Othello becomes less of a character, I think, I, what do you mean by that? Because I might agree with you. Um, that he becomes a symbol of persecution. Yes. That that's, it's, it's just about these things happening to yeah. him. He is a stand-in for all of, you know, African-Americans or, or, yeah, or just exactly. minorities, yeah. whatever. Uh, yeah, which actually does is... It, that is a as a writer and director. That is kind of Tim Blake Nelson. He he kind of trucks heavily in, for lack of a better term, allegory. Um, and I do think that Mackay Pfeiffer does a good job, and I think Julia Stiles does a, does a good job. Uh, but I do think that there's such a specificity to maybe because uh, Hugo, not Iago, that is Josh Hartnett's character's name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hugo, he. He's an active character, whereas just like Iago is an active character, whereas Othello is a reactive character. Um, and so when you ha- when you take your reactive character and have him be kind of vague and nonspecific, then suddenly your your only active character is going to almost seem like your lead uh, yeah, in a that's way. Wh- that's what I remember feeling like. So still, um, it's still a pretty good movie, though I, I recall. Okay. And then 2001, the real standout from 2001 is, of course, uh, Billy Morissette's Scotland, PA. Yes. Which uh, the is whole a, reason for doing this episode in the first place when <laughs> yeah. it comes right down to it. A retelling of Macbeth set in the <clears throat> 1970s fast food industry. Yes. Um, the in burgeoning which, fast food industry, specifically drive throughs Yes. The James Redborn plays a fast food yeah. uh, uh, or a... a <coughs> a restaurant owner who invents yeah. the drive-through. His name is and, Duncan. Um, okay, and then uh, James Legro, right? Yeah, as Macbeth. Yeah, or whatever. I don't Mac. know the character. He goes Mac. by Mac. Um, he and his wife, yeah. played by Maura Tierney, yeah. who at the time was married to Billy Morris, the director. Oh, I think I forgot that. Yeah. Um, but I think they, you know, unfortunately for them, my, yeah. you know, my heart goes out to them. I think they've since split up. Um, and, uh, and so they kill James Airborne and take over the business. Yeah. Delightfully, uh, her her name is uh, Pat. 
at Macbeth, uh, which just, of course, given Pat Nixon, just feels right. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, they kill they kill Duncan partially by accident. Um, and then they commit. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, Malcolm, uh, Duncan's son, is the one that should be taking over the business. And there's a detective played by Christopher Walken named Macduff, who uh, is sort of right. championing all that. And you've uh, also got Kevin, Gor- Kevin Corrigan as... Banco. Banco. Yeah. Um, oh, right. And you've got... Oh, yeah, the... Um, the, the three witches are yeah, hippies, and it's speed, Amy Smart, Speed, speed Levitch, and Andy Dick. Yeah. What a cool movie. It's, yeah, I mean, it's it's ridiculous in many ways. I laugh pretty hard at, at a lot of it. Um, <clears throat> I love the soundtrack because uh, it's just it's just so, you know, uh, their use of bad company. I was going to say, yeah, because, yeah, there's, uh, there's bad company on the soundtrack. That's his son, right? Uh, is in a Bad Company cover band or something? Or James Airport's son? Well, he has two uh, sons, right? He has two uh, So The older one is in a cover, cover yeah, band? Yeah, to, uh, Thomas Geary from Sandlot plays Malcolm. And then he has a younger son who is... Who makes fondue. Uh, who makes fondue and is and does, uh, play, you know, acts in Godspell and stuff. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I really enjoy the movie. And I'll say this, that, I mean, it's a comedy... But it still does all the it still goes through all the beats. Yeah. And by the time as tends to happen with stuff like this, by the time you get to the third act, not a lot of laughs going on. Yeah. Now I'm just committed to what's going to happen to Macbeth and Macduff and all that. And that is I don't necessarily think that's a flaw of the film. I think Billy Morissette just realizes the inherent power of the story and just leans into it yeah. and lets the actors. I think Maura Tierney is great. Uh, I think the oh, whole yeah. cast is great, but I think she's she's particularly good. It's also a nice, uh, another nice svelte um, Shakespeare adaptation at 104 minutes. Yes, anyway. I believe I own Scott. I do own Scotland PA, and it's been years since I've seen it, and I think I want to watch it now. Yeah, so do I. Um, all right, then I'm jumping to 2004. <clears throat> okay, where I. Got the uh, maybe my least favorite movie on this list. Okay, uh, The Merchant of Venice with Al Pacino. Yeah, I, I just I, think I, yeah. if if Tim Blake Nelson leaned too hard on the social justice issues sure. of Othello, Merchant of Venice did nothing to waylay or sidestep the anti-Semitism <laughs> of Merchant of Venice. And so I remember like watching the whole movie being like really uncomfortable, like. You couldn't in a way I almost admire it <laughs> in that like, yeah, OK, they're just they're just playing it mm-hmm. straight. They're playing right into it and uh, good for them. And it's what's what's rough is that like it has all of that, but it also has a really I think a really great performance by Pacino mm-hmm. and just playing the character, just f- finding whatever in the character he can relate to. And I think making the character pretty sympathetic in my opinion. Um, I'm not remembering that this is that Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, high school production is not the only, I did see a college and by college Webster university, which has very good plays in okay. St. Louis, uh, a college production of merchant of Venice when I was in high school, what, a field trip with the drama club. Sure. Uh, do you remember, if they made any specific choices that like steered into or out of, uh, the, do you want to know what 
I probably fell asleep during this one too. <laughs> it is. It is I was, astonishing. I was the kind of teenager who tended to fall asleep at a lot of places. It is. It is. Uh, we were talking about this in the in the commentary recently. Uh, our friend Dallas was referencing like falling asleep during a movie, and I said, and it's not it's not a brag or anything because how could it be? Uh, I don't know. Not since I was a kid. I don't think I have ever fallen asleep during a movie, whether I'm watching it at home or in the theater, uh, or a TV show. Like I could be dead tired, uh, as I was when we went to see Werkmeister harmonies and I'm furious, furious at the movie. But in retrospect, it became one of my 10 favorite movies of all time. Uh, but yeah, I am unable to fall asleep during a movie. All right. The last one I have is a 2015 Macbeth, uh, which I didn't care for. Okay. Um, let's see here. I think that uh, 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 did you forget something? Ugh, I don't want to end on this note, but uh, Nomeo and Juliet, one of the uh, <laughs> one of the first films that I reviewed for the for the site. Okay, um, and it is. Uh, I mean, of course, it's terrible. Okay, um, but it is also they. You know, it's 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 about lawn gnomes, um, and there are different families or clans of lawn gnomes and then sure, Nomeo and Juliet, they fall in love and it's a, there is a Tybalt character voiced, I believe by Jason Statham who, uh, dies, you know, shatters essentially. Um, and so like it's, but that's when it's just everything about it is so, is so inherently silly that when they bring up the tragic part of it and it has a different ending of course uh but when they bring in yeah when they bring in some of the tragic elements it's just like oh this feels wrong it feels (laughs) like a thing you shouldn't have done um but i've said this before i'll say it again to this day it has one of it that movie has gotten one of the biggest laughs out of me uh in just this side thing where uh these two clans they they like race lawnmowers and so they need to get so like our main, our main characters, like, uh, they're in the, the lawn of like an old woman who needs a new lawnmower. And so there are two, so she's on the computer looking for which one to get. And one of them is this adorable little petite lawnmower. Um, and the other is like this, this huge, ridiculous over the top thing. And so you see sort of commercials for both. Um, (laughs) and one of them is is, is like the commercial is voiced by Hulk Hogan. Um, but anyway, so, uh, <clears throat> so when you look at the little petite one and you, and she clicks on it and when she clicks on it, uh, the sound effect is just meow. Okay. And then, right. so then they go over to the, the big one and it's Hulk Hogan just being like this lawnmower will do this, this, this. And so the, the gnomes are so excited and then they click on it and Hulk Hogan just goes meow. <laughs> that is so, it is so it's stupid, but I, I, I love yeah. it. That's very, that feels very Zucker brothers to me. And of course, uh, it but got yeah. a sequel with Sherlock Gnomes. It sure did, and which I didn't. I didn't bother seeing. 2015's Macbeth got a sequel with Assassin's Creed. <laughs> it's the same director and stars. Uh, you saw? I thought you saw Coriolanus as well. Nope, never. Saw you it. didn't. Okay. Uh, so the Macbeth that you're speaking of, yeah, um, Justin Kurzel starring, yeah, uh, Michael Fassbender and um, Marion Cotillard. Marion Cotillard. Yeah, good cast, uh, but not not. Great. What I, are they? I'm in the minority, I think. So don't listen to me. Uh, I mean, it certainly. I just thought it was. <clears throat> you know, I mean, you talk about like how Scotland PA eventually gives in and stops being a comedy 
I feel like Macbeth could have used that. This Macbeth could have used a little bit of comedy. It's like, sure. yeah, we know this is a Shakespeare tragedy, but it's just so heavy the entire time. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's a me problem. You know what, though? I know what you mean, where it's almost as though it's weird because someone could make the argument that like, well, isn't this what Zeffirelli is doing? But like there is this there's this attitude that ha- there's this thing that happens every once in a while when like a classic novel is being adapted or a classic play or something, something that has real weight and prestige to it. And so they'll make it, uh, you know, somebody will make it and they'll make it where it is just dripping with that prestige as yeah, if, yeah. as if to say like, no, this is not fun. And, and it's, it doesn't have to be fun, but it's like, no, this is important, and you are going to feel every single ounce of this weight. Yeah, um, and well, that's that's the vibe I got from that Macbeth. I still wanted to see it, but uh, and I'll say it's in its way, it's every bit as bloody as Julie Taymor's Titus. Mm-hmm. This Macbeth is really bloody affair. Yeah. Um but uh, Julie Tamer was having fun with it. Well, is it <laughs> Justin Curzon doesn't seem to be enjoying uh, what he's doing at all? That's the thing is. Uh, is there any, is there any passion to it, or does it just feel dour? Yeah, dour is how I, that's a good word for it. Okay. All right, this has gone on way too long. I got to go to bed. Uh, oh, yeah. Although I can hear now. Hey, um, that's great. So I guess talking uh, helped that. You can find us. At, or you had nothing else, right? We confirmed. Uh, yeah, nothing else. Okay. Just it's it's always to sort of sum up. I mean, it is interesting to read about uh these adaptations and and watch them and then also to to hear read about like stage adaptations like obviously wells he did an all-black macbeth Mm -hmm. that took place in haiti uh he did a julius caesar that uh was that traded on uh nazi fascism fascism Mm. symbol symbolism and such oh wait i thought you never saw richard the third Oh the, my gosh! Yes, okay. I was gonna say. I'm it, sorry. I, that yes, was one I've that seen, when I was researching, I was like, "Oh, I never saw that." But Tyler, okay. Did. I've seen two. I've seen both versions of it. Damn it! Ugh. This is why. Because I was just, I was just listening to you go through. Uh, I know. I could be quite. Uh, yeah. Fixing. <clears throat> um, yeah, I'll go. I'll go with that. Um, yeah. So I did see. Yeah. Uh, uh, how silly of me. Um, I did see the uh, the Olivier. Um, Richard the third and it's very good and he's very good um, I think he plays the character as and this is something that that is pretty common to that including something like Tower of London uh, this interesting blend of self-loathing and uh, gleefully evil um, but it's but as far as how it is done I mean Olivier was to my knowledge very uh, committed to just like, all right, we are going to play this as straight as possible. And that's not a crime, but it's also not necessarily throwing you any curveballs. It really just sort of invites you to engage with the film almost solely on the performances. Um, however, the, the, uh, shoot, I don't remember what year it was. It was mid nineties, <coughs> 96, I think. Um, and now I don't remember who directed it. Damn it. Uh, uh, 95. It was, it was 95. It was, uh, Richard Longcrane. Um, 
his his adaptation of Richard III, starring Ian McKellen and Annette Bening, uh, among many others, including uh, Maggie Smith and Robert Downey Jr., Nigel Hawthorne, uh, really good cast. Uh, so yeah, he did a, a version in 1995 that is more of a modern retelling. It it, it looks like like Nazi Germany, um, uh, and but at the same time, and and McKellen is marvelous as one would expect. Like he really uh, understands how to play that character as just a guy who. It's weird. His he doesn't he doesn't alternate between self loathing and gleeful evil. He plays them at the same time, if that's even possible. Um, where it's just he hate he. It's like it's like if you describe yourself as the I'm the guy you love to hate. And it's like wait, what, who who talks about themselves that way? Uh, but that's clearly how Ian McKellen's Richard sees himself. Uh, and then they also play it as that you know whenever he goes into a soliloquy, he plays that to the camera, which sort of makes us complicit oh, okay. in in what he's doing. Uh, it really is. It reminds me tonally, you know, talking about like the the 2015 Macbeth versus Julie Taymor. Uh, one of them, again, seems to want you to feel the weight and be very dour and doesn't really seem to take any joy, even in the midst of a depressing story, take any joy of creation. Uh, whereas Julie Taymor's, and I would argue this version of Richard the third, there's just an energy to it Mm. that is, that really draws you in and, and I'll use the word energy already, but it really energizes the viewer so that even if you're not totally understanding what the characters are saying all the time, because it's that Shakespearean language, uh, you're still engaged and you're still invested in what's happening. And again, the whole cast is great. Annette Benning is marvelous, of course, but but it is the Ian McKellen show, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's always sounded intriguing to me. Uh, Richard Longcrane, by the way, uh, looked. Uh, he directed the underrated 2004 romance Wimbledon. With oh, yeah. Dunn from I saw Paul that. Uh, all right. You can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. You can email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com. Or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. I'm on Twitter at Davey Pretension. This week I reviewed Pain and Glory, or I had actually reviewed it. I just, it's my TIFF review, but I reposted it with a link to my TIFF review. Um, uh, and uh, what else? You can search for Tyler's review of Nomeo and Juliet if you want. I, I, I might have reviewed Macbeth. I can't remember. Hmm. Back in 2015. It was so long ago. Four years. <coughs> You know, if you had asked me when that movie came out, I would have said I don't know, two years ago. Like it just it feels more recent than it is. Well, not far enough away as far as I'm concerned. Oh, OK. Uh, you can follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Uh, anything else to plug real quick uh, to Florida? Uh, no, it's going to be Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. But by the time people are hearing this, I will have already oh, okay. done that. I well, went to the, the Hollywood time, the Hollywood Divine Film Festival. I'm doing a couple of panels and then I, uh, will be, I will have given a lecture about, uh, superhero movies. Um, but, uh, I will say over at one any of other, uh, Keystone state activities, you're going to have a cheese steak. Sure. And then, uh, I'm going to go to Wawa. Oh, you should go to a Wawa. I actually in at the film festival in Florida, uh, the, the venue, which is also the ho- uh, the hotel where everybody stays. Um, there's a Wawa right there, like within walking distance, mm. which is great cause it's open all night. And I'm actually like, I have to stop myself from getting overly excited about this because then I look like a big nerd. Um, it is one of the few places I have found that actually carries Propel Zero Grape, oh. uh, which was very exciting for me when that I first discovered exciting. that. Um, wow, wow, all the wonders <clears throat> of the world. 
I've never been to a Wawa. Oh yeah, it's neat. I it's it's go. a it's like a nice sandwich shop uh, and a Seven Eleven. It's very strange. So it's like what White Hen Pantry used to be in Chicago. Oh sure, yeah. Though, I think those are all gone now. Are they? I oh, that's they too bad. But that's what White Hen. I Pantry liked. Was. Yeah, yeah, I liked White Hen. Um, it felt a little bit nicer. Yeah. Um, but that White uh, Hen Pantry. God, we're, uh, we need to wrap up. Yeah. But I was just thinking about White Hen Pantry re- recently for the weirdest reason, because I was thinking about how. Every time now a big news story breaks, I learn about it on my phone okay. or on a computer. Like the idea, I remember being in line at White Hen Pantry in December of 2004 and learning about, looking down at the Chicago Sun-Times, the Tribune, or sure. whatever, and learning about the 2004, the tsunami in Thailand mm. and how many people had, and how awful it was, how many people died, and learning about that, looking at a newspaper at a white hand pantry, and I was like, when was the last time I actually learned about a big news story from the front page of a newspaper? I can't remember the last time. I so have, that's weirdly why I was thinking of white hand pantry recently. I have a very— Probably not the—I mean, if they were still around, that's probably not the association they would want me to carry. Right. Yeah. But, or maybe there's like, come to white hand <laughs> and get your news. Uh, no, I have a very specific memory because, yeah, it was I didn't have a cell phone or—and or, my computer, like— Computers were just for writing papers and sending emails. Um, I didn't really use it as a resource except yeah. for IMDb. Um, and uh, but I do. I have a specific memory. I was I had somewhere to be and I was late, and so I didn't have time to take public transit. So I'm like, shit, I have to get a cab. Um, mm, so yeah. I got a cab, and I specifically remember during that cab ride uh, finding out about the uh, the Catholic Church scandal. Oh. In uh, in 2002, and being like, oh wow, this is a, a big deal, and so you found out from the cabbie. No, he, the, he, he was hey, in, he this? was in tears. Yeah. I don't know. Oh. Uh, no, it was uh, the radio was on. So oh, like okay. it was it was again this very old timey yeah. way of of uh, finding out about, about things. But um, I will say over at more than one lesson, there are not any new episodes. But uh, in the spirit of uh, what we call Halloween times, uh, I have been reposting some of our classic uh, Halloween episodes. Oh, so if you go to more than one lesson dot com, you can hear us talk about uh, various movies and I'll be posting one like every uh, every other day pretty much. And uh, speaking of Halloween scary movie times, uh, this is a great time to join the Patreon mm-hmm. um, because you can you can uh, if you join the Patreon now, uh, you will have access to our October uh, commentaries. Yes. We, we did a, a marathon like we do uh, twice a year. Usually in, usually in the fall, we do horror movies. Um, we watched four religious horror movies, uh, Christian, specifically Christian based horror movies mm-hmm. in a row. We watched Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, The Omen and The Conjuring. Yes. And we had our our friends and great friends of the show and fan favorites sort of cycling through yeah. and, and talking about movies, uh, the movies with us. Those are available. You can buy them individually at BattleshipRetention.com. If you join the Patreon, uh, you can join the Patreon for as low as Two dollars a month. If yes. you join it five dollars a month or more, you get all of those. Yeah. Those are the Patreon episodes. At two dollars, you get Rosemary's Baby. That's it. Uh, yeah. But at starting at five, you get the audio for all of them, and then at the ten dollar level, you get the audio and the video, which can be tremendous fun just watching us sit and watch a movie. Uh, but many of our guests are quite animated, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, looking back as I was as I was putting all of these together and uploading them, I was watching and, uh, and, uh, I laughed quite a bit. Oh, good. Good. So, all right. So that's available at, uh, battleship retention.com, patreon.com slash battleship retention. Thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.